Hi, I'm Diana Penunchal, Associate Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association, and you're listening to Call Number with American Libraries. The recent wave of book bans and other censorship attempts have threatened democracy, restricting access and the rights of many readers. In this episode, we talk about the right to read and how libraries and library workers are on the front lines defending intellectual freedom. First, I speak with Peter Coyle, immediate past president of the Freedom to Read Foundation and director and CEO of Sacramento Public Library in California. We talk about the foundation's recent work in support of intellectual freedom and library workers. We're joined by Sukrit Goswami, current president of the Freedom to Read Foundation and director at Haverford Free Township Library in Pennsylvania. He shares his goals for his presidency. Then, American Libraries Associate Editor Megan Bennett talks with Martha Hickson, a high school librarian in Annandale, New Jersey. They discuss Hickson's efforts to fight book bans and protect children's right to read, despite facing personal attacks from community members. And finally, we receive a special guided meditation from Kim Crutcher, licensed mental health counselor who is on-site at ALA's 2023 annual conference and exhibitions, Community of Care Room. A good reminder for all of us, in the field or not, to take care. But first, here's a word from our sponsor. The Chronicle of Higher Education has the nation's largest newsroom dedicated to covering colleges and universities. As the unrivaled leader in higher education journalism, we serve our readers with indispensable real-time news and deep insights, plus the essential tools, career opportunities, and knowledge to succeed in a rapidly changing world. The most reliable way to navigate and understand the changes and challenges in academia is by bringing unlimited digital access to your campus community. Contact our team by emailing sitelicense at chronicle.com to get a quote and activate your site license. Empower your faculty, students, and administrators with the news, data, and analysis from the Chronicle of Higher Education. The Freedom to Read Foundation is a nonprofit legal and educational organization affiliated with ALA with a mission to protect the First Amendment. Peter Coyle, immediate past president of the foundation, discusses the group's involvement in recent state cases that threaten intellectual freedom, including filing amicus briefs and providing other resources. And later, Sukrit Goswami, current president of the Freedom to Read Foundation, joins us to share his plans for his presidential year. In June, it was announced that the Freedom to Read Foundation joined a coalition of authors, publishers, and booksellers to file a lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of Arkansas Act 372, which would restrict access to books and impose jail time for those who didn't comply with the law. Could you talk about why the foundation joined this lawsuit and where it currently stands? It's a, a big question. I, I never want to say that there's a, a perfect lawsuit for the Free to Read Foundation to join in, but there are certainly aspects of cases that are more suited to our mission. And I think that this case hits a lot of those issues. One, that it affects the rights of people to have access to information, that it seeks to curtail the free access and ability of users and library workers to provide that information and, you know, codifying to law what those restrictions are. Those, I think, are three things which really stick out to me. You know, there are a lot of things that go into 
into the Freedom to Read Foundation, joining a lawsuit or signing onto an amicus brief. But I think that this one in particular, those three things were really striking to us, at least to me and, and as, as we were approached about being part of this. And I think two is, is for us is this is a big case. You know, it's a statewide law. It's not a county restriction. It's not just one book challenge. It's, a, it's bigger than that. And I think for me, that was that was one of the, the big issues. Not to say that any sort of case where it's just restricting one book or one library isn't important. I certainly think those are, are just as important. But for this, this is, I think, a situation where it is a much bigger impact. It would be a, a more dire consequence if it were to, to go into effect. And then your question about where it stands now is an injunction, a preliminary injunction was instituted by the judge. I'm trying to remember, it was just recently in the last couple, maybe last month or so, but that injunction prevents two aspects of the law from being applied right now. And, you know, the two issues really were that librarians and bookstores would be prosecuted unless they removed from the shelves certain materials that people said were unsuitable for minors. And then the other provision was uh, an issue about book challenges and the procedure. And the law talked about appropriateness, which I think for me was the most shocking because that's not a legal term. We have legal definitions of obscenity and and other things, but there is no legal standard for appropriateness. And for me, that's the big issue is, is that you're trying to to come up with some sort of new term or way of, of looking at things. You know, obscenity is a very specific legal definition, and it varies slightly from state to state, but generally it has some, some settled case law, some Supreme Court decisions, but appropriateness isn't one of those. So it really is important that this injunction has gone into effect so that those aspects can be litigated and determine, quite frankly, is appropriateness a new standard that the courts are going to start looking at? The foundation has also filed amicus briefs in two cases, challenging the removal of books in Llano County, Texas, and supporting plaintiffs who are fighting the enforcement of Texas House Bill 900, which takes aim at school libraries. What does an amicus brief do in cases like this? And why did the foundation decide to get involved in these two cases? And could you speak to the temporary injunction that was just granted in the HB 900 case? What do amicus briefs do in cases? You know, that's really interesting because really some, some people call them friend of the court briefs because that's really, I think, the, the translation from Latin. And it gives people who are interested in the lawsuit a chance to share information with the court. It gives them a case to say, you know, you haven't thought about this aspect or this will impact us or our industry or our users in this way. And in this case, amicus briefs give the opportunity for both sides, both parties to have their advocates, their allies share how how the law would impact and influence them. And interestingly enough, there were some cases recently where you know, the amicus brief filed by the foundation was quoted by the courts in decisions. So these amicus briefs can actually be very powerful. And so in think in this case, we got involved for both of these, I think, as I said earlier, because they're they're very important in terms of the aspect of, of free speech. This is not just 
a local library trying to challenge again. This is a statewide case, but it's kind of come to a head in, in Lano County. But this is also another statewide law, which would affect all of Texas. So like in Arkansas, this this also would have some effect of restricting the rights and access of residents to, to use the library in the way that they are. And this temporary injunction issued by the, the judge here in Texas, but his injunction keeps the law from being implemented or, or prosecuted at this point. And so what this injunction, this issue with this bill is that um, books are supposed to be rated by uh, book vendors. For me personally, the issue is a clear understanding or requirement of what those ratings are. People like to use the example of movies and our movie ratings, but that's voluntary. The film industry chooses to do that. There's no law requiring them to do that. That's voluntary. They're, in lack of a better term, they're self-policing. And then the issue for us is, do we want to do that with our library books? We know that reading levels are not always accurate in terms of of children's comprehension or adults' comprehension. So if you do it based on that reading level, where does a book stand? And it, it isn't a scientific way of doing it. And I think that's the issue is that it is putting a restriction on a book. And we've never done that in public libraries. Certainly we have... We put books in sections for children and teens and adults. That's mostly for convenience. Um, That has nothing to do with restriction or saying only children can read certain books. But in this case, the law would then be saying, you have to do this. And that's not how libraries operate. That's not how we've ever operated. And as more states pass bills that restrict access to books or institute criminal consequences for librarians and booksellers, do you see lawsuits becoming more common? And what types of organizations are best positioned to file these suits and fight back successfully? I'm always reticent to discuss suing someone or having lawsuits, right? We would hope that the law is understood and is respected. You know, the First Amendment is foundational to our country, and we have a fairly good understanding of what it is. It has evolved over the years, and sometimes those evolutions require the courts to define what the First Amendment is. So I don't necessarily think that they're bad or good, but I think that sometimes you do need lawsuits. But I think before we talk about suing and lawsuits, I think we have to make sure that we're understanding what's happening at our own libraries and having conversations with our customers and with our users and these family and parent groups and helping them understand the purpose of libraries. But I do think that when laws are passed or proposed that would interfere with our First Amendment rights, I think we do have to sue. And that's why the First Amendment is in our constitution, right? It's a a legal protection. And so the First Amendment is something that the Friedrich Foundation is willing to sue for um, in certain cases. We join a number of coalitions to help pool our resources and to understand the full situation at hand. And the other part of the question about what types of organizations are best positioned, I, I think it depends on the lawsuit and the issue at hand. You know, the Free and Read Foundation doesn't get involved in, in every case that we're asked to be involved with, but we do consider every request carefully. And in some cases, it's better for our, our partners to be the uh, the lead or be involved in general with us as, as, as someone in the background. A lot of libraries and librarians and booksellers and others are wondering if they should 
file their own lawsuits to protect intellectual freedom or themselves in their own communities. What should a person or organization consider before pursuing legal action? And would you recommend pursuing action as a coalition? Yeah, I would say the first thing is, you know, obviously every situation is different and this is not legal advice. If you're a library worker and you're worried about something, I would first talk to your employer. Do you work for a local library or a county library or school district and see what their situation is? Do you have a county or regional or a state library association or professional association that has a group that, that tracks these things? It is better to have strength in numbers but sometimes you have to have those conversations first, figure out where, you know, who needs to be in that coalition. And I think sometimes it's, it's strategy. And I think getting that legal and political expertise and consulting in terms of how you should approach things is really important. I would encourage people to, if there is a lawsuit, to do it as a coalition or at least a group of people. It doesn't have to be large. But these can be very trying and very emotional, and it can become very personal. This is not an easy situation. What kind of resources does the Freedom Trade Foundation offer for those who are interested in filing a lawsuit or want to be proactive if the time comes? Yeah, I would say if you're in a situation where you really think a lawsuit's necessary, I would definitely call the foundation and have a chat with the staff there. They'd be able to tell folks about the possible opportunities that the foundation would see to be involved. I'd say the other thing I'd encourage people to do is to join the Unite Against Book Bans. Um, that is a coalition that the Freedom to Read Foundation is one of the first partners. Um, we helped found the Unite Against Book Bans. And there is a lot of information there about Band Books Week coming up. There's also resources for publicity, for social media, and other toolkits as well. So I think those are two really great places to start. And I think that I think this is a great question because it really highlights the importance of those coalitions. That that this isn't just librarians and library workers. You know, this is really about making sure that our First Amendment rights are protected. And some people have said this is a political issue. And I don't know if I agree or disagree. I, I would say, yes, it is a political issue because everything seems to be political. But really, it's a constitutional issue. Um, it really comes back to what this country was founded on. And this country was founded on the right of people to believe or not believe what they want. And libraries' job is not to teach people what they should and shouldn't believe or what they are or not. It's to give them information. People can make those choices for themselves. We provide accurate, reliable information that's fact-based, and that's what we do. Um, we don't have any agenda other than educating people and improving their lives. There is no ulterior motive to convince children to have one sexual orientation or one gender identity or have one political belief or vote one certain way. It's not about that. It's about providing information and people can make their own choices. But when you pass laws like these two that have been proposed, those take away that freedom. And that to me is the, is the scary thing. And as a last question for you, Peter, did you ever imagine that your year as Freedom Tree Foundation president would be so litigious? Is there anything you wish you had known before you took office? I just know in the four years I served on the board that the last year was definitely the most intense and there was the more litigation and it was, and it has become more litigious. You know, occasionally we would 
do amicus briefs for maybe a couple state bills or maybe some federal bills, or maybe there was a Supreme Court case. But it was, I would say, less than a handful a year. It really was not much. I am surprised. I never thought it would be like this. And it is indeed, it's a scary time. You know, our profession is literally under attack. And I, I don't mean that in the, any sort of hyperbole. You know, I have phone calls with colleagues who have here in California, a local library closed three times in the last month for bomb threats because of some of these issues around the programs the library is offering and the groups and, and what's being said. So no, I didn't imagine it would be this litigious, but I am glad that the foundation is here to take on this role. I'm glad of our supporters and our donors. You know, I don't want to be, be crass, but it's not cheap to do these things. You know, the foundation is not a money-making institution. No one who serves on the board gets paid. I'm not a board member anymore, but one of the jobs of board members is to raise money um, to do this work. That's the key message I think here is that it takes everybody to do this. And this isn't just the foundation doing this on its own. We're doing it because we're trying to protect the rights of our members and um, those who even aren't our members, but to protect the rights of everyone in this country to have their First Amendment constitutionally protected speech available to them. Thank you so much, Peter. Now we're joined by Sukrit Goswami, current Freedom to Read Foundation president. Sukrit, what are your goals for the Freedom to Read Foundation in your year of presidency? Are there any lessons you're looking to apply? Of course, the couple goals I have are very fundamental to our Freedom to Read Foundation. One is to continue to support the right of libraries, which is to include in their collections and to make available to public any creative work they, as libraries, may legally acquire. Uh, other thing is, which is really very important to me, is to provide support to libraries and librarians that are suffering legal injustices by reasons of their defense of freedom of speech and freedom of the press. And like Peter very well mentioned, quite a few uh, scenarios over here. And other thing is, it's a little more personal to me, which is like, I believe as a president, I have a unique opportunity to impact change. I love that Freedom to Read Foundation include many persons of color. And currently I'm working with a couple of my colleagues where we would like to organize an event where we can have a dialogue with national library associations of librarians of color, where we can have conversations on access to information and uh, equity, diversity, and inclusion. I would like to build coalitions beyond libraries. You know, like that's, that's what my goal is. You mentioned about the lessons, <laughs> which is like, it is basically what I have learned is importance of building consensus in libraries, you know, and having strong policies that are useful, especially during these litigations. Continue to fight for libraries and librarians by being true to the main Freedom to Read Foundation's statement that is free people read freely. The Chronicle of Higher Education has the nation's largest newsroom dedicated to covering colleges and universities. As the unrivaled leader in higher education journalism, we serve our readers with indispensable real-time news and deep insights, plus the essential tools, career opportunities, and knowledge to succeed in a rapidly changing world. The most reliable way to navigate and understand the changes and challenges in academia is by bringing unlimited digital access to your campus community. 
Contact our team by emailing sitelicense at chronicle.com to get a quote and activate your site license. Empower your faculty, students, and administrators with the news, data, and analysis from the Chronicle of Higher Education. Martha Hickson is a high school librarian in Annandale, New Jersey, who has been on the front lines protecting intellectual freedom. But speaking out against book bans has resulted in her being called a pedophile, pornographer, and groomer by those attempting to censor books. American Libraries Associate Editor Megan Bennett speaks with Hickson to find out more. Back in 2021, you made headlines for your work to prevent the restriction of a series of books, notably ones with LGBTQ topics and characters. What did that pushback look like both in the school and outside of it? What was maybe the most shocking or surprising elements of that whole experience? Well, the most shocking and surprising element of the whole experience was to hear my name coupled with accusations of being a pornographer, pedophile, and groomer of children. That was shocking. I assembled a group of community allies. We called ourselves the North Hundred and Voorhees Intellectual Freedom Fighters. So I already had that little infrastructure in place so that on the night of September 28th, 2021, when I was falsely labeled and those books were attacked, I was able to reactivate that group almost immediately. What was the process of of getting that group together or mobilizing that infrastructure to help with the prevention of censorship? It started actually in the moment. My husband and I were watching the board meeting via live stream. And as soon as I heard these comments start, I knew that I had to get to work. So I had this cell phone in my hand. So in the moment, I was already alerting ALA Office for Intellectual Freedom, National Coalition Against Censorship, Pen America. I think actually my first text was to my union president. Uh, my union was very helpful in this as well in terms of marshalling co-workers. Not all of them were on board, but those who would be on board, the union was able to enlist. I already had email addresses for the North Hunter and Voorhees Intellectual Freedom Fighters. So the next day I was able to reach out to them and point them to the video of the board meeting and say, you know, this happened. <laughs> We need to do something and we need to get rolling right now. Let's start writing to board members. I reached out also the next day to the presidents of our two schools, GSAs, the Gender and Sexuality Alliances. My union said, don't involve the kids, don't involve the kids. And this time around, I was like, I'll just say it, bullshit. I'm involving the kids because it was very clear to me based on the, the books they were attacking and the way that they were attacking them, that the books were a proxy, that they were really going after people. And they were going after people I care deeply about, my students. So I thought the students need to be forewarned that this is happening and that they can play a role in fighting back. So it was just a lot of kind of knowing who would care and just reaching out to them. And when I reached out to them, I was also specific about what kind of help I needed. And basically it was, I need you to write to the board and I need you to come to the next board meeting. What kind of feedback have you received from your students at your school about your efforts against the removal of these books? It makes me cry thinking about it. I have had kids who will pull me aside to say, thank you. I had one kid um, this past school year, a girl pulled me aside and she said, I've been watching you. I saw what you did. You're a badass. <laughs> I just love that one. But I have gotten dozens of emails and cards and letters from former students who watched this play out, 
from college or I've been doing this long enough. They've watched this play out from their careers. And almost every one of those who has written to me told me that they were not out in high school, but they are so thankful that they had a library at their high school where they felt represented and it enabled them that representation and the knowledge that they had a safe space enabled them to come out in their own time. So those kinds of letters are just so, so gratifying. And this whole process started, I believe, in the fall of 2021. How long did it take between the initial challenge to getting the books officially retained at the library? How long was that process and, and what did that whole thing look like? It started at the end of September and it came to a conclusion at the end, that's September, 2021. It came to a conclusion at the board meeting in January, 2022. And what it looked like was after the ambush, I'm gonna call it at the board meeting, the district formed a reconsideration committee, which their policy requires them to do. And eventually that reconsideration committee met. There were five books challenged altogether, all with LGBTQ themes. So that reconsideration committee met over a series of months because of course they had to read and discuss each book. One of the things that happened in the interim was by the end of October, I suffered what I now know was a stress-induced breakdown at work. So there was a period of time, about a month, when my doctor removed me from the workplace. But the unexpected silver lining of that was because I wasn't at work every day and I had nothing but time on my hands, I was able to devote myself full-time to working this issue, writing talking points for people, and, and so on. So that was a little gift that I didn't expect. But the October board meeting came, and there were hundreds, about 400 people at that meeting, the vast majority of whom were there to demand the right to read. The kids were just incredible at that meeting. The following month, November, similar uh, turnout, not in terms of size, but in terms of the composition. There were probably about half the number of people there. December, there was no board meeting, but I didn't want to let the board go from the end of November to the end of January when the next board meeting would be with no thought about this issue. So I designed a couple of holiday cards and I encouraged our followers to download a card and send it to their board member. And basically the card asked uh, the board members to give students the gift of reading. Toward the end of January, we had no word during that whole time about what was happening with the reconsideration committee. In fact, I learned that All Boys Aren't Blue had been challenged only because I saw unusual activity on my Tidal Wave account. There were six copies of it ordered, and I'm like, wait a second, <laughs> what's this about? At the end of January, when the board agenda for the January meeting was posted, there was the report from the Reconsideration Committee, and that's how we found out their recommendation. And their recommendation was to retain four of the five books, but they recommended banning This Book is Gay, and there was a resolution on the board agenda for Tuesday evening for the board to vote to ban the book. So this was on Friday night that I'm finding this out and Tuesday night they're going to ban the book. And I was like, no way in hell is that going to happen. I had checked out at that time, this book is gay, 33 times since it had entered the library in 2015. Now you might say 33, big deal. But <laughs> for a nonfiction book in a high school, 33 is a lot of circs. And I could still see in my mind's eye, the kids check that book out and 
I knew in my heart of hearts how much they needed that information and it would be a crime to let that book go. And it wasn't until, honest to God, that night when I was looking at the cover of the book that David Levithan's name jumped out at me because he had written the North American introduction to the book. So Saturday morning, I hopped online and I thought, you know, David Levithan grew up in New Jersey. I'm pretty sure he lives in either New York or New Jersey. And I knew he worked at Scholastic in Manhattan. I said, somebody in my network must know how to get in touch with him. So I put up the bat signal to my librarian peeps in New Jersey by our, our NJSA listserv. And within two hours, thanks to a librarian friend in Hoboken, David and I were communicating. I asked him if he could uh, send a message to the board and he agreed to under one condition that I have a student read it on his behalf because this wasn't his first rodeo. And he knew that it would appear very self-serving for an author to show up at a board meeting. But if a student read the author's message, the board was much more likely to pay attention. And indeed they were. Because when it came time for the vote, I lined up a whole bunch of speakers for that board meeting. Parents, community members, students, librarians, including me, and after we all spoke and the board went to vote, they did not accept their committee's recommendation and they voted to retain all five books. Walk me through how you were feeling in that moment. What was the, the initial reactions or emotions that were going through you at the time? My husband and I, again, were watching it via live stream. This was back in the COVID time. So the meeting was virtual. And I was literally biting my nails because as the board members they were batting this back and forth and there was some debate about, well, we put this committee together and the committee recommended this. Why would we go against the committee's recommendation? And I'm thinking, oh, please, oh, please, oh, please. So I'm chewing my nails. And then several of the board members spoke in defense of the book. They had read it. And then it came down for the vote. There were two who voted to ban, three who abstained from the vote, which pardon my French, was a real chicken shit move. And then the remaining seven voted to retain it. When it became clear that retain was going to carry the vote, I started crying like a baby. <laughs> it was five months of stress and tension just fell off of my shoulders with a huge thud. It was such a relief. Public libraries or, or larger libraries, when there's a book challenge like this, I mean, there's a team of librarians typically that one can lean on for support, but you and so many other school librarians are the only librarians at your school. I mean, how does that add to the weight or the pressure of the work of, that you're doing and trying to fight censorship? It's really rough. And I know from the many, many librarians I've spoken to over the last two years, it, it's difficult for all of us. You just feel like you have all eyes on you. You can't make a move without somebody criticizing it. And you, know, you feel like in the bigger picture, you know that there are people to reach out to, ALA and CAC and so forth. But in the moment when you need something right then and there, there's nothing. You just have to use your own survival instincts and your training and your experience. I feel so fortunate that this intense situation happened to me, you know, when I had been there at that time, I had been there, I was in my 17th year. I had, you know, a lot of turf behind me, but, you know, some librarians are going through this when they don't have tenure yet, or maybe they work in a state where there is no such thing. They might work where they don't have a union and their very livelihood is at risk, you know, their ability to earn an income and have health benefits and so forth. So although I would not wish for this to happen again, 
I am very, very thankful for the circumstances under which it happened to me. What advice do you have for librarians who are going through these types of challenges? Knowing your policies. You have to be on top of those policies and know them because your administrators don't even know that there's a policy about the library. And they will think that they can do whatever they damn well please. So you have to be the one to say, uh, 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 have you read this policy? We need to follow this. So that's a very important one. So the other big thing I want other librarians to know is pay attention to what's happening, the censorship ecosystem, because those patterns will become pretty clear immediately. And when you know that, then I think it can help you take things less personally because the same talking points were used in all of these challenges, the same strategies where they're lashing out at individual librarians by name. Had I been aware of that, it might not have been such a devastating experience. The Chronicle of Higher Education has the nation's largest newsroom dedicated to covering colleges and universities. As the unrivaled leader in higher education journalism, we serve our readers with indispensable real-time news and deep insights, plus the essential tools, career opportunities, and knowledge to succeed in a rapidly changing world. The most reliable way to navigate and understand the changes and challenges in academia is by bringing unlimited digital access to your campus community. Contact our team by emailing sitelicense at chronicle.com to get a quote and activate your site license. Empower your faculty, students, and administrators with the news, data, and analysis from the Chronicle of Higher Education. And now, sit back and relax. Kim Crutcher, a licensed mental health counselor, offers us a special guided meditation. It's a good reminder for all of us to prioritize our well-being. I'm Kim Crutcher, an interfaith minister and licensed clinical professional counselor. I'm talking to you today to offer a practice of breath work as a way of relieving stress and connecting with yourself and connecting with purpose. Close your eyes and imagine that you are sitting among the trees. Trees and all plants sit in reciprocity with humankind When we breathe in, we're breathing in their exhalations of oxygen. When we breathe out, they happily breathe in our breath. So I want you to imagine a tree and a space where you can feel the breeze. And imagine that the breeze is blowing across you and the tree in kind. And just for a moment, Imagine this tree is a witness to the work that you do. That this tree is standing witness and working in reciprocity with you. And just feel the support of that moment. And as you gaze in your mind's eye at that tree, breathe in through your nose and out. Do this in your own timing. The breaths don't have to be any particular length. As you breathe in, 
come in deeply and as you exhale, let your exhalation be slightly audible, exhaling on a light sigh. Breathe in. And just sit in your mind's eye for a moment with this trait. As you finish this practice, you want to finish with three breaths. One to ground you back into the moment. The second breath to give gratitude to yourself, your whole physical body, and the plant sitting in reciprocity with you. And the third breath is for the collective. All of those who believe that knowledge is an essential factor for practices of freedom. Breathe in. And exhale. Thank you for sharing my practice. For more news on intellectual freedom, visit us online at AmericanLibraries.org, where we'll be posting exclusive content for Banned Books Week this October 1st through the 7th. Next episode, we're diving into the world of witchcraft for Halloween. Is there a story or topic you'd like us to cover next? Let us know. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.